when I finished my training, I moved to San Diego, and I decided that the kind of person I needed to date was a surfer girl. There was something about my training that had been so rigid and so dedicated that the sort of free-living style of the surfer girl was very attractive to me. They didn't seem to have jobs. They didn't have to be anywhere at any special time. And opposites attract. So I thought, that is what I need. Well, I didn't know how to surf. But I had a friend who had a surfboard, so I decided I would see what I could do. I'd also have to say that I wanted to attract someone who didn't know what I did. So I wanted someone to love me for me. And so I thought surfing is the great equalizer. And so I took the board and I went out to the beach and I styled my hair and I stood the board up <laughs> there at the beach and I just sort of waited to see if anyone would, would come by. <laughs> I didn't want to actually have to use the board So I stood there, and people went by, but no one was really noticing me. And then I saw a young woman sort of scampering along with a boogie board, and she went right by me. And I said, hey. And then I picked up the board, and I put it under my arm, and I started, she was in the water, so I went after her. And you know, you get the board under your arm, and I thought it was very important that she see that I had big muscles. And so I turned the board sideways so that it would show my big biceps. And she was a little farther out in the water. I'm out in about a foot of water, and I noticed there was a, uh, a wave coming in. And I had, um, well, I hadn't been surfing before, so I didn't really know the calculations. It was about a three-foot wave. We were in a one-foot of water, and I, said, and I saw it coming, but it was too late to turn the board perpendicular to the wave. But I thought, let me show her what a rock I am. And so I held the board tight as this two-foot wave hit my nine-foot by two-foot board. And I, it jarred me, and it knocked me back on my butt. And I sort of stood there looking up at her, and she was looking at me saying, are you a poser? <laughs> and then I saw the worst possible thing, another wave was coming. <laughs> and it picked up the board, and it pushed it against my chest, and it pushed me underwater. And I got up, and my hair was hanging in my face, and I just sort of saw the back of her scampering away, and I believe I'm the only one that I know of who was run over by his own surfboard in one foot of water.
is it ironic that what I wanted was to be loved for me, and what I chose to do was pretend I was someone else? At that point in my life, I also focused mostly on externals. Narcissistic people tend to focus on externals, what you look like, what you wear, what you drive, your watch, because inside we really don't like ourselves. Inside we, we know there's something lacking, but if we can get enough splash and flash outside, maybe we can divert the attention to, to people that they might actually believe that there is something inside, and we might actually believe that there is more inside. You see, developing an inner world, it takes more than just information. We all have a lot of information. It takes, it takes discipline. And if you want to play the piano, speak a new language, it's, discipline is something that you engage in because you can't do it by direct effort alone. You're going to need to put something into it. But in our microwave culture, we want it instantly, and it doesn't come instantly. It comes through how we react to pain, to suffering, to difficulties in life. Are we willing to grow? One of the morning rituals I have is when I look in the bathroom mirror, before I have combed my hair or shaved or anything, I say, you are beautiful. You're delightful. You're beloved. These are words from the scriptures. And I know many people would say, oh, I can't say that. And I would ask you, if you can't say that about yourself, first thing in the morning when you look in the mirror, what does that mean? Does that mean you're only beautiful when other people say you're beautiful? When everyone agrees that you are delightful? Or can you hear the voice of God over you even when other people might not agree that you're beautiful? Because that's who I want to be. And so I have a discipline that I have engaged in to try to produce a result which is not where I'm starting from, which was with the story I've just told you about I'm beautiful when other people think I'm beautiful and my hair is perfect and I have big muscles. And whatever your beautiful story is, that you then will agree that you're beautiful If you want to change that, you're going to need to put in some time, some effort, some strategy. But it's well worth it. Some years ago, I decided to do a neurosurgical mission trip to Africa. You know all the planning that goes into that getting medical supplies, medications, rubber gloves, 
some surgical tools, whatever I wanted to take, medicine sutures, to this hospital. And it was in Kenya, long flight, San Diego, through Europe, down into Africa. Six-hour bus ride to the hospital. First case, three-year-old with an epidural hematoma. The, the mother was out chopping down a tree for firewood, and the tree fell on the little girl. She came in. She was very close to brain dead. And despite the surgery, which was a very difficult surgery, to try to stop the bleeding. We got the bleeding stopped, got her off the table, but did not. she didn't survive. So that was a tough case. And seemed like every day or so there would be a, another case like that, plus lines and lines of people with diseases I, I couldn't really help them with, some cerebral palsy, non-neurosurgical problems. After three weeks... I'll tell you about the last case I did. It was uh, a lumbar disc surgery. I thought I'm going to save an easy case for the last for the day before I get on the plane back. Woman in her 30s, single mom, and she had a L5-S1 lumbar disc. She had sciatica. Her motor strength uh, was weak. So we, we scheduled her for surgery. We lined it up, and we started the case. Positioned her flat. You use um, rolls to lay the patient on top of these chest rolls. And then from the hips the, down to the knee, there's a, uh, an angle, and then the knee to the foot goes up. There's, there are pillows we put under the feet so that the, the leg is in a V shape, which reduces the tension, the traction on the spinal nerves so they're easier uh, to manipulate, to operate on. We padded everything, and I started the case. And I got down to the, uh, to the bone, to the spine, and I said to the nurse, can you tilt the table toward me? And she said, well, I, I don't know if these, if these tables tilt. And so she got under the table and turned a, a crank, but nothing seemed to happen. So I said, well, nothing's happening. Just, just it's okay. Well, we kept operating, but I noticed things were very, very difficult for me in the surgery. It was a 45-minute or one-hour case, and this Two hours later, two and a half, three hours, I was struggling, struggling, trying to figure out what was going on in here. Um, just the, the anatomy was strange. I, I was having to move things that I shouldn't have had to move, make a wider exposure than I needed. And you're in the middle of Africa. It's one of those times when you would love to be able to call somebody, hey, would you come take a look at this? What's going on here? But you're, you're the only one. It's, it's up to you to figure it out. So I was, I was praying. I was doing everything I know to do to try to make this case go faster. Ultimately, we finished. 
I was working with one of the surgical residents, so he was closing up the, uh, the, the wound. And I took off my gloves. Finally, the case was over, and we took off the drapes. And I saw, to my horror, what had been going on. Instead of her legs having that V-shape, when the nurse turned the crank, she dropped the legs so that her feet were touching the ground now. So that I had been operating in the absolute worst position you can possibly operate in, with her nerves all stretched like guitar strings for three hours. And when you're under general anesthesia, normally you can protect your nerves because your muscles will tighten. But under general anesthesia, you can't. So I was absolutely horrified. I quickly grabbed her ankles and pulled them up to try to take some traction off of her nerves. And I, I just broke out in a sweat. What, what, what have I done? Because the drapes were on and because the nurse who hands me instrumentation had her tray above the patient, I couldn't see anything going on in the legs. This was totally blind to me. And everything was covered with drapes. And so and no one else in the room really knew what was going on. And obviously, the nurse turning the crank thought she was, I'm not sure what she thought she was doing, but they don't do neurosurgery in that hospital in Africa. They only do abdominal surgery, and people don't turn those cranks. Well, I was irritated, I was angry, but I was just, I guess you call it like the, the dark night of the soul. She woke up screaming in pain, screaming in pain. I didn't know if she was going to be able to move her legs after the surgery. And I didn't know if I had caused a chronic pain problem by putting the nerves under that kind of traction. Well, she woke up in pain. We were able to give her, finally, enough uh, sedation, enough morphine to, to, to sedate her. But I left the hospital that evening, and I was, I would call it dark night of the soul. What? I couldn't really pray. I couldn't really do anything. I was just, my guts were in a knot. I, I, I was just in pain. You know, normally your brain tries to find a cause for that kind of pain because you never want to feel that way again. So you're going to find the person who caused it. You're going to find, well, maybe you caused it, then you'll beat yourself up. But in this case, I, it was such a mystery to me how this could happen, but it happened. What would you do when you enter that kind of darkness? You have gone to Africa to do the best you can to help people because you have such a, a giving heart. We know the motto of medicine, do, above all, do no harm. What have I done now? I've taken someone who had a lumbar disc and now I've created more of a problem for this single mom. All of the weight, all of the responsibility of that on your shoulders. How would you handle it? 
I just want to pause for a moment because one of the ways we learn is through story, is by going through what would I do in that situation. And maybe we can find some new ways, new ways out, or even discover something about yourself. Well, what I did, I knew that I needed at that point, I needed some comfort. Because when we are hurting, what we desire is comfort. Is there, is there some comfort I can receive? Where do you go for comfort? To the refrigerator, to the chocolate, to the ice cream, to the videos, to the... Facebook, where do, you, where do you go for comfort? It says a lot about who we are. But it also has a lot to do with your family of origin. Were you able to get comfort from your father or your mother when you had made a mistake? Or was there just all of this shame and all of this blame? Because many of us in that situation like myself, are going to be hearing a lot of negative voices, especially ones like, you should have known better. You, sh you should have known. I mean, you're responsible. You're the surgeon. You're there. You're supposed to know. And I remember that there was a, a verse in the scripture that I had read that said something about comfort and so I looked it up, and I memorized that verse, and I began saying it over and over to myself. And the verse is in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 3 and 4, and it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those in any affliction with the comfort with which we have been comforted. Father of mercies and God of all comfort comforts us in our afflictions. And I began to say that over and over. And I went for a jog and I, I, I began to say that verse. And I can tell you, it didn't transform me. But I believe that by using that verse and saying, I need some comfort right now. I am very uncomfortable with this situation. I need some help. <clears throat> and I could pray for that woman. And I could pray for the situation. I am lost right now. I need help. It kept me from getting worse, from spiraling down. Because I was alone, I hadn't, didn't have my usual social network to go to, I was able to receive some comfort. I wouldn't say the problem went away, because I still had a woman writhing in pain back in the recovery room that I was going to have to deal with. But I had a father of mercies and a God of all comfort who was with me to do that, to go with me to see what we could do for this patient. 
Well, I didn't sleep much that night, and I went in the next day. Celia was smiling. Her pain had resolved. I was so incredibly relieved. Uh, I just said a prayer with her, thanking God that that pain had resolved. And then I got on a plane, six hours to the airport, probably the, the next three or four days of, of travel and what have you, probably slept just a few hours. I got back to the States, took a day off or so, and then I started one week of call for neurosurgery here. And a few days into that, a patient came in with a, with a very high-risk uh, stroke syndrome. That was really hard. In fact, I remember on the way driving home from that case, I, I, was, I, I felt in the surgery sort of a, a chill. And, and we keep the, the rooms fairly cold. But I'm usually not shivering. So I was shivering, and on the way home, I, I realized I, I was having trouble driving home. I had chills, I had a little bit of fever, but I was still on call. I got called the next day for a patient with a um, vasospasm after subarachnoid hemorrhage. And that requires going up through the femoral artery with little balloons and dilating the vessels in the brain. Very technical. I called everyone I knew to see if I could find anyone else to go in and do that case because I was just feeling so bad. No one else was available. I went in. I did the case. It was successful. I got off call. But that next morning I woke up and I noticed the bottom sheet of my bed sheets were wet. And I thought, huh, well, I haven't wet the bed in years. <laughs> At least not since medical school. Must have had too many covers on. It's nothing. Next day I woke up, bottom sheet and the top sheet totally soaked. I said, you know, this reminds me of something I learned about in medical school. I think this is night sweats. Huh. And at that point I started having this productive cough as well. I was coughing, and I had fever, chills, night sweats, and I said, huh. And I did what any neurosurgeon would do. I Googled it. <laughs> Number one diagnosis, tuberculosis. Oh, I thought, oh, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. That is not what I need right now. So I called my infectious disease colleagues and went in for all the testing and samples. And I mean, the ID guys are funny. They, they, he was, he was actually so happy. He was hoping I had tuberculosis. <clears throat> I mean, normally, right, ID guys, they're, they're treating, you know, 
allergies to antibiotics or diabetic feet. A neurosurgeon back from Africa two weeks with a night sweats, and a, this was a big fish. He was so happy. <laughs> Something to present at the monthly conference. I mean, this was going to make his life great. In fact, he even said, David, I, I really hope you have tuberculosis. <laughs> he said, no, no, I mean, I mean, so we can treat you, is what he said. So now I'm on quarantine. I can't work. I've, I've got to, I felt like sort of one of the lepers in the Bible. I, I, I basically have to stay away from everybody. And then I begin getting worse. Coughing, can't sleep. Coughing and coughing and coughing. As I'm laying there and I'm, and I'm coughing, <clears throat> you know, when you're not sleeping, of course, everything gets worse. And I started to get angry. This is not right. This is not fair. And I wonder, those of us who are caregivers, and that is most of us, if not all of us, when you give a lot, you are expecting it to cost you a certain amount. You've allocated a certain amount of energy to your giving project. But oftentimes those projects end up costing us a whole lot more than we had planned on spending or allocating. And when that happens to you, how do you react? We are very controlling of our time, our money, our energy. I had already spent three weeks there and now I was going to spend another six weeks without working. That was way more than I had anticipated investing in this mission project. You see, many of us have, have difficulties when our giving doesn't work out the way we had anticipated. And as I was angry there, and I was kind of angry, I would have to say, you know, we talk a lot, oh, you should pray. It's tough to talk with someone you're angry with. It's tough to pray, especially when you're sick. It's probably the worst, I mean, all you can say really is help or heal me or something. It's because prayer is very relational. I wasn't feeling very relational. But a word that came to mind The word that came to mind was entitlement. Entitlement. I thought, that's an interesting word. I wonder why that is coming to my mind. Well, what is entitlement? It means that you are entitled to something. You are expecting something. Look, I'm a neurosurgeon. I, I go to Africa, and I'm not supposed to get sick. I've got a card that says that. I'm entitled to get the card punched, I, I do things for other people, and other people get sick, but I do not. That's entitlement. Other people can, can give, and they might get sick, but I mean, there's a reason people don't every day fly over to Africa and get involved in the medical system there. It's risky to do that. Oh, but it's not supposed to be risky for me, because I'm entitled. And as I started soul-searching, looking into myself, realizing, hey, where did I get this? 
And I realized this is such a part of our culture that I am entitled to all kinds of things. I'm entitled to escape suffering on many, many levels. And that that entitlement wasn't serving me well. It was only making me angry because it's sort of a deal you make with God, essentially, is what entitlement is. I do this, and you are supposed to do that. I, uh, look, I've been giving, I've been doing this, I've been serving. Keep up your part of the deal. It's a contractual relationship, contractual arrangement that we make with God. He's very relational. He will change those contracts that you make, and you think he signed on to that. He didn't sign on to that. He's there relationally wooing you to himself. David, you need some help now. Could you use some, some help? You want someone to walk with you now, or you want to do this all by yourself? Because what I learned in my family of origin is it's just better to do it on your own. It's just safer. What if there was a good father, a father of mercies and God of all comfort who actually wants to walk with you? Could your circumstances, your suffering, allow you to bring God into your life and into your problems? One of the things I began to, to say as I was there laying in the bed coughing, one of the scripture passages I recalled and I pulled it back up and memorized it was Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. He will protect you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. And I needed some protection from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. And those verses were comforting to me in that scenario. And slowly, very, very slowly, I recovered it. After six weeks, none of the tests came back positive for tuberculosis. I was thrilled. They determined I had a viral pneumonia. Why do we get those diseases? Why was my immune system so low that a virus was actually able to replicate enough to give me a pneumonia. Well, think of the stress of those weeks. But stress actually is not necessarily your circumstances as much as it is the way you interpret those circumstances. It's the way, in my case, mostly it has to do with how is this going to look? What are people going to think if I came to Africa, injured a patient, and then leave back to the United States? How is that going to look? What are people going to say? What are they going to think about me as a neurosurgeon? So much of our stress has to do with how other people are going to see us. 
But what then? What is an anti-entitlement program? If you see that you have entitlement, and I would imagine that most of us do, what, what would you do to counteract it? I'm laying in the bed. I recognize I've got entitlement. And if entitlement is claiming that you deserve things that you don't have or that you haven't been given, then I reasoned that an anti-entitlement program was a program of gratitude. To thank God for things that I have that maybe I've been taking for granted. Well, I wanted to be thankful, but when you're sick, it's actually very hard to be thankful. I wasn't thankful for anything. It, it's, your, your mind is just not really thankful. You're sick. And so I began saying, God, thank you for my eyes. Thank you that I can see. I know people who can't, but I can, so I thank you for that. And for my ears, I can hear, I can hear songs and music. And my mind, I still have a good mind. I st you have to start where you are. And I began giving thanks. And I began trying to nurture or cultivate this gratitude in my soul, which was particularly ungrateful and angry about where I was and about how I felt that God had treated me with all my giving. I want to pause just for a moment. I wonder if there's some gratitude that we can nurture right now. Maybe there's some things. You see, most of us give thanks, but we give thanks for what I will call $1,000 joys. New cars, new job, new, you know, big check comes in. We, we give thanks for the big things. Because when we were in high school and when we were raised, all that dopamine enters your your mind, and you get so used to these big joys that come along in your life. But because we get those big joys, oftentimes we forget to give thanks for the small joys. And as we age, we don't get as many of those big joys. Uh, the new car, the driver's license, the date to the prom, all those things that were so dopamine-stimulating in high school, those come along a lot less frequently as we age. And so if you are going to continue to have gratitude, you're going to need to give thanks for the $1 and $5 joys that come along all the time. They just fly under your radar. We're always waiting for the big hit, the new, the new something. What if you would give thanks for things you've taken for granted? Maybe your health, or maybe your back has been hurting, but have you given thanks for all the years your back wasn't hurting? Maybe your eyesight, you need glasses now. Have you been thankful for all those years you didn't need glasses? See, we have this entitlement very, very deeply ingrained in us. And you can actually change the way you perceive the world through gratitude, actually. There's a lot of research on that. So I'm just going to take a moment now, and I want you to think of some things that you want to give thanks for. And you could even do it in a way, there's something called I call a gratitude grab. And that means if you don't give thanks for it, you may not have it tomorrow, which stimulates you to realize how much you want to give thanks for. 
So let's take a minute, and I want you to do that right now. Just do it, do it on your own. The last thing I want to talk with you about is called reframing. Reframing your problems is essential to good mental health. It's interesting that we think that problems, that, that other people's problems are great opportunities for them to learn. Other people's problems, those are great opportunities for them to learn. But our problems, now we just want those to go away. As you reframe, you begin to ask the question, in my circumstances, in my, these problems that are facing me now, and we've all got them, whether it's financial, whether it's health, whether it's relational, we've all got something going on pretty much all the time. What might you learn from that? Some love, peace, some patience, goodness, kindness, self-control. Is there something that you might learn from it? Can you reframe that? Is there something that if you were to change, maybe the other person or the health issue or the finances may not change right now. What if you changed? What if you had more peace about that? Is it possible that in this situation, just like with myself laying in the bed, that actually there was an opportunity for my heart to change, for my entitlement to be reframed? Wow, how did I get so entitled? Well, had I not been in the bed coughing, I would actually not have been open to learning. You see, all of us have a worldview, and as long as life is working for us, we are not open to change. We are going to do exactly what we've always been doing, because that's the easiest way to do it. And so I want to pause just also a moment and say, what can you reframe about your circumstances? Is there something that you can learn right now that if you weren't in this situation, you actually wouldn't be open to learning? You wouldn't even consider it. You would have assumed that area of life I'm good with. Think about reframing. Well, what did I learn? Whether it's not keeping my surfboard perpendicular to a wave, or whether it's controlling an operating room table in Africa, there's a certain amount of grace you want to give yourself that says, I've never been here before. And as type A people, as highly motivated individuals, often we have a voice that tells ourselves you should know better. You should know what to do in every situation. I've got this saying that I say to myself and I say to others, you've never been here before. How would you know? And even if you have gone through something like that at a previous stage of life, I can tell you, you haven't been through that, not at this age. Not with these circumstances, not exactly like this. You haven't been here before, so this is new to you. Can you give yourself some grace 
when you face something that's new to you. Because I have had to learn that because those voices keep telling me, you should have known. You should have known. And somehow our medical profession, whether it's the medical legal aspect of it, also says you should know in every situation exactly what to do. But there's a humility in saying to yourself, I've never been here before. And maybe you'd want to ask God to walk with you through this situation, to father you through this situation that you have never been in before. And I learned about entitlement. I've learned to continue to cultivate an attitude of gratitude, especially for the small things. Yes, every now and then, you can get a $1,000 joy. There's a, a new family member or something big. But most of us are going to need to learn this discipline of picking up the $1 and the $5 joys along the way. And by the end of the week, you're going to have 1000 but you're just not going to get it all at once. You need to recalculate how you're going to get your joy. And many of us, that's the reason we go to the movies. That's the reason we're watching television. Now we're watching other people have those joys that we so desperately want. And I'm telling you, you can turn off the TV and you start picking up the $1 and the $5 joys. And by the end of the week, you're going to have 1000 Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this, please give positive feedback by subscribing or leaving a positive comment. It encourages me and will encourage others to listen. Thank you so much.